it's difficult to give people permission in a way to to just come in and make the space alive because without the people obviously it's just a whole lot of books which is great and everything but it's not i mean if, if we turned all the lights off yeah there's not a lot going on Ears Wide Open. Uh, this podcast is a project of the Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop right. <laughs> at 201 Ponsonby Road. And um, we are today continuing um, the two-part series of podcasts with the proprietors, two of the three proprietors of the Open Book. Um, so we've got here today with us Hayden Glass, who is um, the proprietor and also uh, Johnny on the spot for a lot of things for this bookshop because his two other co-proprietors live in other parts of the world. Hello. Hello. It's nice to see you. It's a pleasure. Yes. So I asked Hayden to um, send me a list of favourite books and all books he wanted to talk about um, and he did so that we could talk about some of those and there are a few books that brought up a thing that I am particularly interested in and think about a lot, well somewhat. One was um, The Last Samurai, and the other was The Man Who Loved Children, and also Eucalyptus, all had a theme that spoke to me about art saving people, art being a way of people saving themselves or saving each other. And I wonder what was interesting to you about that, or if you even agreed. Yeah, um, I think I think it just it makes things a little bit more bearable to give it the most negative possible connotation like so much of life is sort of banal or repetitive or just sort of habitual and I think a little bit of narrative and a little bit of color and a little bit of I don't know sort of um, magic can be delivered by art in in a way that can make something even very something very normal seem also part of some amazing bigger story mm. that feels helps you feel like it, you're not so lonely in the universe. You know? So I know you're particularly fond of eucalyptus. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well it's a story of a man who has a daughter, and it's basically a fairy tale, and he decides to give her away. Obviously, we're talking a slightly different era or a slightly different ethos to the um, first man who can name every uh, eucalyptus tree, (laughs) every eucalypt on his property, which is very extensive and includes practically all eucalypts in existence in the universe. And what's appealing to you about that? You said everyone loves a fairy story. Yeah, I think everyone loves a fairy story, and I think it's particularly beautifully constructed, and I think that... Um, this sort of insider knowledge about, I mean, I don't know anything about eucalypts, so I could, might be able to distinguish one. I would say that's a gum tree. <laughs> and I think there's something interesting about the just the way that the story is told that is, you just sort of get swept away in it, in this um, story of like real lives, but presented in a in a sort of slightly fictional way, you know, it's a, you know, it's just an interesting take on a rather um, pointless and trivial thing. Because in a practical sense, to say 
I'm going to give my daughter to the first man who can name every tree on my property. It's just, it's just a stupid idea. Right. Yeah, and it's it's nothing sort of really terrible happens in that. Book. No, well, no. Well, the mother has died already, you know, but there's no sort of awful things that happen. But one of the other books on your list, mm. The Men Who Love Children, mm. is just um, an incredibly long list of, like, dreadful, appalling, appalling behaviour. Correct. What is appealing about that? That's a good question. I, I, I think my life is blessed, and I am interested in I, I read quite a lot of books where you know, people are just horrible to each other. Like, and I just find that kind of that nature of humanity, that sort of nastiness, or that sort of exploring that. What is it to be just an evil? I find that really, really, really interesting, since I am not evil, and the people I have in my life are not evil. I just find it an interesting thing, like, why why be bad? I suppose it's the, the opposite of that fundamental question, like, why be good? Like, why, why is it that, um, that, that this, this sort of exists in the world? So some of the books I think that you read around evil are actually books about genocide or war or right. awkward pieces of history, right? And you look <laughs> at them, awkward pieces of history. <laughs> you look at them and go, shit, well, that definitely happened. Mm. Um, but what can you learn about the interiority of the people involved in it from a post-fact, mm. you know, outside account? And then you look at fiction and you go, oh, well, here's a version of people being horrible to each other. How well do you think those things actually match up? Like, what are you learning from the fiction about the history? Uh, well, I think, I think there's something important in the in the factual version, which is something about the thin line that divides us, like um, from bad behaviour from good. You know, that that basic reality that um, if you well here we are in a shop, so if you want to. If you give people the opportunity to steal things from your shelves, then you can you, know, you can rest assured that that's more likely to happen than not. Like, given the opportunity to be venal, you'll see venality. And if you construct a system that encourages vice, you'll 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 get more vice. Like humans are not um, humans. Are, there's a large sense of sense in which humans are opportunistic. You know. And but I think, I think venality is quite a different thing. Well, I mean, venal and mortal mm. sins, right? Yes. Let us divide um, these into the relevant categories. <laughs> yes, well, we don't want to get too far into Catholicism, I suppose. But I think if we... Yes, that's true. So there's a very big distinction. I suppose I'm avoiding the fundamental question of why are people just horrible to each other? Like, you know, why, given a choice, would you be violent to your neighbours? And I just find that those sorts of, you know, those exploration of that character and the circumstances in which um, the, the limits of humanity I find really interesting. So I'm also very interested in um, what I usually describe as, you know, I, I, I did this thing and I should be dead, you know, whether you're on a mountain or you're on a sea or you're um, in the Arctic, there's a lot of that, you know, you've, you've done something that just is it's practically impossible to survive and yet here you are. So those sort of those things that what is it, um, what is it at the edges of being human, or what is it that the that 
So it tells us something much more than you get from, you know, people just going to the shop and doing their groceries and doing their laundry and paying their taxes on time. I think there's something interesting in there. And why is that, if it doesn't actually touch your life, why is it important to notice that this exists? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I think it does touch my life. In this, I think it does touch my life in that I'm part of this too. You know, if I, even if I... And we're all, we're all somehow on the same team. We're all somehow part of the same, we're made from the, roughly the same kind of dough. We spend a lot of time you know, distinguishing ourselves from each other, but but that's me too, you know. So I hated the men who loved children. Mm, I, I hated <laughs> it so much that I threw the coffee out. It was a very battered coffee. Um, I threw it out. And one of the things that I hated about it, um, apart from the fact that they were just um, unstintingly awful to each other, and we should say it is in fact autobiography, dressed up as fiction, so, um, was that it contained the motif of the writer escaping whilst everyone else remained behind, which is this art will save you and somehow those who appreciate art are more worthy of saving or savable than the dullards who can't come with us onto this plane, which I think is my basic objection to that mm. formulation. Yeah, and so you would prefer a man who loved children where nobody was saved, where it was just like a massive whirlpool, it was like, it was like um, last exit to Brooklyn or something, where everyone's just horrible to each other all of the time and it's never remitted and it's never going to be okay and it's always going to be like this until the end of time. Well, I don't think I'd read that book right. with pleasure either. <laughs> But you I think, think they would have more to say? What I think, think that there's a dis, I think that there's an ego-driven dishonesty at the heart of the idea that art saves, which is mm. that it's always, of course, written down by artists, and probably those other children got themselves out of the situation in some manner and went on to make lives that didn't involve being, you know, famous novelists, but had some human value to them, possibly even more. Who knows? The Last Samurai, however, I thought was amazing, mm. and I really enjoyed reading. Um, but here's the same theme, right? At the end, an amazing CD is made. So there is a troubled mother and a precocious son. Um, and then an amazing CD is made that might help the mother. But what appealed to you about that book? Uh, what appealed to me? I think that it was um, it required a lot of attention to read. And it also... Because... Um, because it doesn't have a descriptive structure. It's, there's a lot going on um, in, in just sort of writing down the sounds that come out of the characters' mouths. And there's a lot going on in writing down the sounds that are happening around them. And you have to sort of be paying attention to understand how the action is moving and what is actually happening. So, yeah, it, it's... Um, it requires something of you, I think, as a reader. And I generally, yeah, I generally, um, most of the books I read have got adults in them. You know, child narrators, particularly, I don't like child narrators. They just sort of seem slightly uninteresting. So if you're, actually, if you're actually presenting your narrator as a child, a lot of the stuff that goes on is going to be totally bewildering. Um, and so you usually end up with a child narrator who's kind of unexpectedly got this sort of adult insight into events, which seems generally 
in, um, not credible, but in this particular book, the perspective of the four-year-old is obviously presented from the mother's point of view. And so you get a, a sense of, I mean, he's not, yeah, he's pretty amazing for a four-year-old. So you, you get a sense of, um, a sense of amazement, um, but not entirely kind of um, presented from the point of view of the child. And it does have an incredible texture of reality, I think, as well. Yeah. Despite being uh, completely improbable. Yeah. yeah and outside yeah. normal experience. Yes. And I think also the fact that they make a team with the world and the four-year-old is not aware. I think this is probably characteristic of children, obviously, right? You, you start out, you're not aware of your social situation. And in fact, their social situation is extremely dire and it remains so throughout the book. And you, so you have this sense of, they deserve better than this. Like things, how could things work out this way? There's some sort of, they've got this extraordinary world relationship, but also these extraordinary powers, and yet the, you know, the universe in which they exist, does not does not seem to respect it, but seem to reward it. And the son has, I mean, they're both, you know, incredible intellects. And then the son goes on a quest to find a father. And on the quest, he picks up this very valuable piece of art and then he chooses not to sell it. And I thought that was interesting because he is sort of entering into his mother's extremely austere view of what is tasteful. Mm. Taste is her ultimate arbiter of everything, right? Yeah, Taste and also giving up, you know, um, just almost at the point of anything that anyone else wants, I cannot want, which, um, I mean, it's certainly one way to live your life, but it doesn't seem one that's sort of destined for joy. It seems to me you want to try and find ways that are a little bit easier on yourself to, <laughs> to enjoy what you're actually doing, because otherwise you'll, you'll end up. Like, what are you playing for? Like, at what point did the do you win all the marbles? If you, if if it's just oh, I've managed to restrain all possible desires on my part forever, then well, <laughs> what's kind of the point of all of that? You know. Apart from desires for very complicated books, which Apart is from what desires the, for very complicated which books. is what she all she has. Yes. Um, and the, the other thing that interested me a lot about that book was that near the end, someone kills himself basically out of sort of horror at the world, right? And I feel like the book then attempts to resolve that and say, oh, no, there could have been, you know, there's, there are other options for the mother who has basically the same sensation just about existing in the world. But I don't know that it does that that successfully. And it's a first book. And I just kind of wonder how much, whether you, what your view is of what the writer's intent was with that mm. message. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. You probably asked the writer, but what I what is the text telling us? Let yeah, me say. what, what did do you, I think what did you glean from the text? That's correct. I, that was a clumsy formulation. Yeah, I don't know. I think if you, it's a difficult subject to talk about. If you, it's certainly possible to reason your way to the pointlessness of any of this stuff. Like here we are sitting in this room surrounded by a few thousand literary novels and you know think well right now there's someone who's just putting the finishing touches on another one 
and there might be eight finished today and eventually they'll wash into the second-hand bookstore and so you might well say to the author of any one of them it's kind of why why bother you know because actually there's already plenty you know you don't need to push another one out into the world so i think there's something um there's some limit in rationality you you can't you can't reason your way to this room <laughs> you can't reason your way to even you can't reason your way to this whole endeavor of a secondhand bookstore like what are you what are you talking about even so which is so, a good segue <laughs> to my question which is what are you talking about oh. what what are you doing with the secondhand bookshop Hayden I should say is is another economist so understood the mechanics of what he was getting into before he got into it I think to some extent yeah like a friend of mine very perceptive friend of mine described this project as a contest between my mind and my heart and the mind of course being like wow you can do the numbers and you can see the rent and how much you need to spend on this and that and you can see that actually you can see the reason why secondhand bookstores are why we have fewer and fewer competitors as the days go by and then part of me just didn't want to live in a world where there are no secondhand bookstores and in the particular case of this one which is very close to my house um, didn't want to live in a world where this particular one was not available uh, to me and having given the universe plenty of time and plenty, all the other people in the universe plenty of time to come and buy it from the previous proprietors and save it since none of them appeared to inclined to, to do so eventually the, the job fell to me so yeah time will tell I suppose if this is um, it's just a sort of folly or um, whether we can actually make it um, what it has to be, which is commercially sustainable so that it can, it can stay here in the community forever. So tell me the very beginning of this story. Okay, the very beginning of the story is I lived just near this bookstore um, back when it was with the previous proprietors and I came in here you know, periodically to buy second-hand books. And of course I was, you know, I really liked it. Uh, and then I was doing a project um, with my consulting economics hat on about the impacts of technology on um, businesses. And so I asked the proprietor if she would be willing to do an interview about the impact of technology for um, business, especially about the impacts of the internet. And she said yes, she would. And in the course of that interview, it became apparent to me that, um, that I could be helpful because I knew a lot about technology and I could assist with some pieces of the puzzle that um, um, that seemed like they'd be useful. So I started doing, I started volunteering here and just all I did was every month I would do a review of the numbers, you know, overall how many books did we sell and how much were they worth and that kind of thing. And the systems, the computer systems weren't, it wasn't super straightforward to get that information out. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that it went on like that for two years. Um, before the proprietors said, oh, look, it's time that we did something else with our lives. Now we've seen the numbers. Now we've seen the numbers. So I have plenty of information. <laughs> I had plenty of information on the, you know, the actual environment in which we were operating. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's sort of how it began. Well, then they put the bookstore on the market, and as I say, I, you know, let everybody else bid for it and nobody did so <laughs> and it was well it's probably not going to be a bookstore it's probably going to be something else around Ponsonby so it's probably going to be a frock shop or a restaurant or a cafe or something 
Um, and I thought, oh, well, actually, I think having a space, having this kind of somewhat, a space that's commercial <laughs> enough to stay here, to pay the rent and things, um, but is also a place where things that are kind of not commercial can happen, a stage for culture and a place where people can um, do whatever it is that they want to do to express their um, humanity or creativity. That's an important thing to have and, and uh, that many of them. So that's that's kind of why we're here, I suppose. And, and what are the main changes that you've made? Uh, well, we've changed the name and the branding. We've physically changed the space usually to make it um, an easier place to hang out and more welcoming and also easier to find books. We've got a lot fewer books than we used to have. Um, uh, and so that which implies that we're doing much more work with curation. And we've built a backyard and a folly of a garden with very poor economics, but um, so we can, you know, just sort of provide a space where people can sit around in the sunshine. Um, yeah, and I mean, on the other changes, we've improved the track of revenue and we've got more customers and we've invented some new services. And, and we've, yeah, we've recently started doing this amazing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all, all in service fundamentally of... Um, of trying to get enough people to come in the door and, and buy a book um, every now and again that, that the whole enterprise can exist for everybody and in a sense it's a bit like a, a bit like I suppose it's a bit like insurance or um, everything's a bit like insurance <laughs> in my world <laughs> well yeah it's a bit in the sense that not everybody pays anything some people pay a lot and some people pay not very much but overall it's enough that we all that this little ship can keep on can keep on sailing so yeah, we haven't we haven't reached the point yet of um, of being commercially sustainable, but we don't lose money every week either, so it's much better than it used to be. And if you were, it's the last question. If you were to sum up what the um, ethos or even the wider of the bookshop is, what would you say? One thing that struck me is not really an answer to your question. It's more of a well, I suppose there's two answers. One, one thing is, one thing that struck me is that it's extremely hard to get people to do anything for free, and we are basically providing a space to come and do your thing, and it might just be sitting around and drinking a delicious cup of filter coffee, or it might be reading a book, or it might be doing a crossword, or it might be using our Wi-Fi, or it might be reading a poem, or it could be anything. It might be buying a book. Thank God for you. Um, but uh, there's so few places that are genuinely kind of non-commercial um, and the rules around them are reasonably well established you know the library or the art gallery or something so um, it's it's difficult to give people permission in a way to to just come in and make the space alive because without the people obviously it's just a whole lot of books which is great and everything but it's not I mean if we turned all the lights off yeah there's not a lot going on so it's it's been interesting that um, that piece of the puzzle, and I suppose the the brand aligned answer to your question is well, our basic narrative is out of this world. That's our brand promise. We're we're here to provide you with something that is um, 
unusual that takes you out of the day-to-day, that physically takes you off the street and into this different environment. Time runs a little bit differently. And it's... Um, and it's um, I wouldn't want to say perfect. I think most say it's tolerable. You know, it's a place where um, you can enjoy, and it's um, in that sense um, out of this world as well. And that's what we're really trying to. Is, I don't know how that um, came about in the course of the creation of the narrative of the identity of the brand, but somehow that came about, and it characterizes so perfectly what it is that we are doing here and have been doing here will continue to do here um, that I'm often surprised by how apposite that little tagline that we have on everything that we do is great thank you Such a that pleasure. was amazing uh, so that was Hayden Glass who is the proprietor of the open book one of the three proprietors but the one most often to be found um, hefting books and um, picking up crumbs and throwing things into the recycling bin as required. So you've heard the story of the bookshop. Come on down. If you're in Auckland, come to 201 Ponsonby Road and read a book or buy a book um, or steal a book if that's your view on life. Um, and if you're not in Auckland, you can sign up to the weekly, uh, not weekly, that would be a bit much, the monthly or two-monthly um, book bag, which is an amazing service, and you get the most beautiful brown parcel with a wax seal on it, uh, hand-sealed by the proprietor, I think, mostly. Yes, um, so do that. Mm-hmm.